Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining us today, he is the star of the 2006 film Pope Dreams, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, man. I, I am doing so well. David, uh, I just had my real birthday. Congratulations. And you bring up Pope Dreams, which is one of my favorite movies of all time that I've done. Now, did you think when you mentioned Pope Dreams that it would be a goofy, uh, a goofy memory of mine? The thought had occurred to me because it's called Pope Dreams, but looking at the cover, it looks like a pretty serious film with a lot of uh, indie cred, actually. Yes, and I got to uh, play husband to uh, Julie Haggerty who uh, I performed with on Broadway for a year. One of the great, I mean, everybody knows Julie from Airplane and What About Bob and all that. But Julie is a great actress, no matter what part she's playing. Anything she does, she's great. And this is a fantastic performance of hers. And it, if, if anyone is out there looking for a very interesting, out-of-the-way movie that is funny and has great performances in it and will make you laugh and cry... You can you could do no worse, no better, no worse. What is that phrase? No worse, no worse. Go to oh, Pope oh. Dreams. Go to <laughs> actually, Pope no, no. Dreams. I'm sorry. It's no better, no better, no better. Pope Dreams is as good as it gets. It is a completely satisfying movie, and uh, once again, congratulations to Patrick, our director, it just uh, and writer. It just beautiful, beautiful story, and and you you people will love it. Now, I had my birthday, David. And I did have an interesting kind of thing that happened on my birthday. Okay. And that is my wife, Annie, made me a cake, and uh, she got 60 candles <laughs> to put on the cake. But when it came to it, when push came to shove, 60 candles was too daunting, and so Anne resorted psychically to something my mother used to do, which was put... I use a sort of random mathematics to put any number of candles on the cake, and part of the birthday was figuring out what the mathematics were as to how to arrive at the number of candles on the cake. So I think in this case, we had several candles that represented 10, and a couple that represented uh, two to grow on. And when I blew, when I blew, when I blew the candles out, a little bit of a... Uh, Sputum is that? Yes. <laughs> is that what you can see? A little sputum actually actually came out on the cake, and my two boys were horrified and said they weren't eating any of it. But that just meant more for me, which is the essence of birthday. Well, congratulations on that, Stephen. And yeah, I, I like how people can reconfigure the cake uh, in different ways in terms of the candles to indicate different ages. Uh, although I think the human eye has trouble instantly telling how many how many sort of units of something there is above like 
uh, six or seven, I think. And at that point, it just all blends into a huge mass of candles anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I got to say, David, at, at the age – I am 60, but I'm not really 60. I'm not the same 60. I think I'm – 60 is kind of like the new 48 maybe. Uh-huh. I, f- I feel like I'm 48 well, if, you, if you're talking about how scientific technology is advanced to keep people alive longer these days, then I completely agree. 60 is the new 48. <laughs> yes, and, and I'm and a you, real picture of science technology you, keeping someone alive. You're 60 years young, Stephen. That's how I think of it. 60 years middle age is the way I look at there it. There you go. All right. Well, Stephen, a lot of people who listen to the Tobolowsky Files, including myself, yes. often wonder – how is it that you're able to have such a good memory of all of these events, uh, especially like even the ones that happened when you were little? <laughs> In fact, it has caused some to doubt the veracity of some of your stories. Actually, that's, yes, that's yes. just, that's just no, me. No, that is true. That's that is me. true. Yeah. Veracity has been doubted. And, 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 it, and what you say is true, that in the emails, people write me all the time and they ask me, Stephen, how do you remember all the things you remember from so long ago? And I have two answers. And I warn you ahead of time, both of them are pretty unsatisfying. The first is, I have no idea. Uh, Sometimes I seem to remember the most seemingly insignificant things from my life. Example, I remember sitting in my first grade class when our teacher, Maddie Lou Smith, asked us if we knew what she was holding in her hand. And for those of you who weren't there, it was the picture of a letter Q. I raised up my hand immediately. I waved it in the air with occasional grunts of enthusiasm. And she called on me before I fell out of my desk, and I answered correctly. She showered me with a good deal of praise, but more importantly, afterwards, she smiled at me. Now, today, if you were to ask me, I could not tell you what Maddie Lou Smith said about how advanced I was for knowing what a cue was on site, but I will always remember her smile. In this case, I can easily say I remembered the item of the greatest value. No matter how flattering words are, nothing is more valuable than a smile. It's the human equivalent of an open door. It's my belief that a smile is one of the primary building blocks of luck. And I sometimes think that all a lucky person really is is someone who is able to see the open doorway and find solid ground on the other side. In a world of luck, there can almost be nothing more lucky than a smile from your teacher on one of the first days of school. It can last a lifetime. At least it has for me. As ridiculous as it may seem, I remember Maddie Lou Smith's smile all through my school years, all through college, all through graduate school. And whenever things got bad, I was able to see her face again as a point of reference that there was a time and a place where the world looked right. The second answer as to how I remember all of the things I remember is also not very informative. And for me, it's a little troubling. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can't recall the names and faces of people that really matter to me. Sometimes I've forgotten the origin of an essential idea that's guided me through my entire life. And of course, the upside of an uncertain memory is that life is always a mystery. The story today is about one of those mysteries. This is a story about the first Zen parable I ever heard. Maybe. That's the first thing Zen will teach you. No sentence should ever end with a period. Just a maybe. 
As I look back, I can't remember where I originally heard this story. And now I assume I learned Zen the same way every other American of my generation learned it, watching The Andy Griffith Show. Back in 1961, I was 10 years old, and whenever Andy Griffith came on, our family was huddled around the television set. It was as good as it gets. Whether it was Aunt B unknowingly entering store-bought pickles in the Mayberry Fair, or Deputy Barney Fife having to keep the only bullet he was allowed to have in his shirt pocket, every story was filled with a moral dilemma of epic proportion. Now, the main life lesson I retained from The Andy Griffith Show was that if you're going to steal, steal good. Television was so much better when it was based on Zen and Shakespeare and the Bible than on comic books and video games. Somewhere in this era of the early 60s, I heard the Zen story. It may have been at Cub Scouts or at Sunday school, and it's a very familiar story now, but back then it was shocking. And in my mind, I combined the parable with the characters from the Andy Griffith show, so here's how I remember it. Opie is confronted by a bully on his way home from school. The bully holds a bird in his hand and tells Opie that he cannot pass unless he can guess if the bird is alive or dead. Opie's afraid that any answer will be wrong. He turns back. He goes home the long way, not knowing what to do. I never could remember the end of the story. I had no idea what Opie did. I had no idea if the innocent bird was set free. I had no idea what Andy would say when he found out. And I think the reason I can't remember is that somehow maybe that television show didn't happen, but it could have. And the question still has lingered in my mind. What happened to the bird? And how would Opie get home? Fade out, fade in. I had my second encounter with Zen ten years later. I was in college, living with Beth on McFarland Street. Like any normal college student, my life seemed to revolve around two different poles— seeking the meaning of life, and drinking beer. Toward the former goal, I was suddenly interested in all things in Eastern culture. I let my hair grow out. Well, sort of. I didn't look like Siddhartha. I more looked like a member of the Young Rascals. But this was still a radical change for me. I bought some incense and burned it in the living room, so our apartment smelled like a bathroom in a movie theater. I bought an Indian print tablecloth and wore it around our place like a sort of combination sari beach towel. I attempted to eat Chinese food with chopsticks in public. Beth used to explain my behavior to friends by saying, I was going through my Indian phase. One afternoon, I was browsing through the school bookstore, and I found a collection of Zen and pre-Zen stories that caught my attention. It was not so much the subject matter that interested me, but this was probably the smallest book I'd ever seen for sale in the grown-up section of a bookstore. It was teeny. It seemed like a great way to expand my Asian cultural awareness without having to invest a lot of time. I looked at the introduction. It was about a half page long. And it said the book was a collection of stories that migrated from India to China as early as 500 B.C., Side note, I'm guessing that 500 B.C. was probably a pretty good time to be alive. Remember, this was also the beginning of the Golden Age of Greece with Socrates and Plato. Gautama Buddha brought Buddhism to India about 500 B.C. Confucius and Lao Tzu were also teaching new concepts in ethics. 
It seemed to be one of those rare periods in history where there was wisdom in fashion. Note on the side note, wisdom has rarely been in fashion. It takes way too much work. Throughout history, people have sought out PWS, painless wisdom substitutes, wearing turtlenecks, owning a smartphone, having a bumper sticker for your local classical radio station or little cheats you can use to look smart without getting on people's nerves. The right hairstyle and accessories can say a lot. In fact, I was in an eyeglass store and a man turned to me and said, do these glasses make me look smart? I smiled and said I wasn't sure. I wasn't wearing my glasses. Anyway, I bought that little Zen book, brought it home, sat on the day bed by the kitchen. Beth was at school. I was going over to meet Alan Winslow later that day to play some cribbage, so I had about an hour to kill. I figured it was enough time to read the book, maybe twice. I opened it up to a random page. I started reading, and there it was. It was Opie's story. It was the original version of the bully with a bird in his hand. Now, this is a very famous story. You've probably heard it, but as a refresher, I'm going to give you a short version. A brutish, foolish man is jealous of a Zen master who lives in the town and wants to embarrass him. He catches a bird. He confronts the Zen master on the road. He holds the bird in his hands behind his back and challenges the sage to prove his wisdom. He says, if you are truly wise, you could tell me if the bird I'm holding is alive or dead. The man knows that if the Zen master says the bird is dead, all he has to do is open his hands, lets the bird fly free. If the Zen master says the bird is alive, the man simply squeezes his fist crushes the bird, and it drops to his feet. Either way, the Zen master will be wrong. It's a win-win situation for the bully. But Zen masters are not to be trifled with. The sage doesn't play the man's game. He stares at him and simply says, The bird is whatever you wish it to be. Its fate is in your hands. The master walks off, and the foolish man is handed a moral defeat and slinks away. That was it. I closed the book. I was about to move on to another story when I was bothered by a question. It was the same question that bothered me when I imagined Opie was confronted by the bully. What happened to the bird? For some reason, I felt that was critically important. Did the man take the bird home? Did he set it free? I couldn't figure out why it mattered so much to me. I went over to see my friend Alan. I took the little book with me. While Alan was putting on the new Paul Simon album, Kodachrome, that dates it, doesn't it? I read him the story. I could tell by Alan's smile after the first sentence that he'd heard the parable before. In fact, I'm guessing he'd heard it many times. As he was shuffling the cards for cribbage, I asked, why was it so important for me to know what happened to the bird? Alan laughed and said, because Stephen, the bird is everything. The bird is the only way we know if the man learned anything. I said, how do you mean? Alan said, well, it's simple. If the man is still angry that the Zen master showed him up, he may kill the bird out of spite, you know, just to be a jerk. If the man suddenly realized the Zen master was right, and he could see that he could control his fate, maybe he would feel liberated and let the bird go. The bird is all important. Stephen, the bird is the barometer. Yeah, I said. 
you don't really feel satisfied unless you know the man has changed. If he doesn't change, it's just another time when the Zen master was too smart to get fooled. Alan laughed and said, have you read that whole book? I said, not yet. He said, well, I don't want to ruin it for you, but the Zen master never gets fooled. That night, I told Beth the Zen story. She said she liked it. I asked her what she thought happened to the bird. She asked, what made me think there was a bird? I said, because the story said there was. Beth shook her head and said, that's why they call it a story. I didn't really think of the parable again. I was pretty confident I understood what it meant. It had two main points. One, fate is in your hands. And two, don't mess with a Zen master. Now we flash forward 10 more years to around 1985. I was living with Beth and the pooch in the house up in the Hollywood Hills. I was acting in the Three Sisters at the Los Angeles Theater Center. This particular day, I was watching an afternoon talk show before I was heading off to the theater. The guest was talking about his new motivational book. Motivation was a big seller in the 80s. It was a decade where self-destruction shacked up with self-help in an unhealthy codependent relationship. People wore Coke spoon necklaces and Save the Whale t-shirts at the same time. On TV, the author got very impassioned and started to tell the story of a man stopping a Zen master on the road. That caught my attention. I smiled when he got to the part about the bird. I was guessing he didn't know what happened to it either. He said the point of his book was just like the story. We had to wake up to the fact that the bird is in our hands. We had the power to mold our lives. That's when it hit me. He was wrong. We were wrong. I sat up in bed. My brain was spinning. I had a satori and realized that that isn't what the story was saying at all. It only took me 20 years, well, 10 years, 20 years if you go all the way back to Mayberry, to get the fact that the Zen master did not have the bird. I repeat, the Zen master didn't have the bird. The choice isn't his if the bird lives or dies. In fact, he has no say in it at all. It's in the hands of a brute or a mean boy at the fishing hole. Could it be possible that the story wasn't about realizing your own power, but was about fate? When you see it through those eyes, the story was saying that one's fate, hopes, and dreams were in the hands of someone else, and not just anyone, but a malevolent stranger you meet on the road. Wow. That seemed to fit my life in Hollywood. There is so little control in the life of a professional actor. One of my early parts was a perfect haiku of this fact. I auditioned for the small role of Park Ranger in the movie Roadside Prophets. I basically had one long speech about how littering in the wild can lead to the strangulation of baby beavers. Try saying that three times fast. Believe me, the speech was funny. I thought the audition went well but I never heard if I got the part. My agent called the production office, never got a phone call back. I forgot about the movie. Completely. Three months later, I ran into the writer-director, Abby Wool, at a screening. She told me she wanted to call me, but things got crazy. She apologized and laughingly told me the truth was she cut the part out of the movie. No more Park Ranger. I told her I was disappointed, but understood. A few days later, Abby called me at home and said, Stephen, how would you like to be our park ranger? 
I screamed and said something like, um, huh, uh, yeah, sure. Abby said, great. We shoot the day after tomorrow. I hung up the phone and started screaming again because I completely forgotten all my lines. For the next 36 hours, I lived and breathed baby beavers. I got to the set. My ranger costume was comprised of a ranger shirt and ranger shorts. Both were four sizes too small. They said they didn't have time to shop for new clothes for me, so they just cut them up the back, slid them on me, and used safety pins to hold them on. I was ready to do the scene when the assistant director, or the AD, dropped by and said they had to push my speech to the end of the day, so I'd have a couple more hours to wait. I didn't mind. More time to memorize. I drilled the beaver speech over and over again. Around sundown, the AD came back and told me, unfortunately, they had run out of daylight, so Abby decided to cut the scene from the movie again. Disappointment. I started the long and occasionally bloody process of unpinning myself. I threw on my regular clothes, headed out for the parking lot. From out of nowhere, Abby came running out of the woods and called out, Stephen, stop, go back, get dressed. We have time for one take. I ran back to the trailer. I squeezed into my ranger shorts. The customer quickly repinned me up the back. Abby found a spot among the pine trees with a shred of sunlight. She explained quickly what she wanted me to do. She wanted me to do the speech riding in on a bicycle. I ran off set. They handed me some decrepit bike that belonged to someone on the crew. I jumped on it. She called action. I rode into frame. The bike started to fall to pieces. I ignored it and gave my beaver speech. I tried to get off camera the best I could. She called cut. They tried to reattach the handlebars while Abby decided if we had time to shoot one more take. She decided we did. I went back to square one, jumped on the bike, rolled into frame. As I finished my speech, the entire front of the bike fell apart. I walked it off camera. Abby called cut. That was it. We had run out of light, but I left with a great sense of accomplishment that I finally got to shoot that scene. Two months later, I heard, unfortunately, I was no longer in the movie because they had lost the film. So I guessed it just wasn't meant to be. Maybe. A week later, I was working on another project. One of the guys on the crew said, Did you hear? We found a can of film in the back of one of our trucks in Las Vegas of a movie you just shot called Roadside Profits. I said, You're kidding. He said, No, I think they sent the film back to Hollywood. Indeed, they had. The missing film got back to the editors a week before the final print of Roadside Profits was locked. I got a call from Abby that the footage was usable and made it into the final film. It opened. The park ranger scene is in it. I know because I just got a residual check from Estonia for 17 cents. But this is just one of the tales common to the film business. There is no control. At this point in my life, I could completely buy that this was the real meaning of the Zen parable. The story wasn't about a foolish man and a bird at all, but was about the Zen master coming to terms with a lack of control over the events that confronted him in his life. Or maybe not. I was learning that Zen stories have the nasty quality of changing before your very eyes. What if the story was really about certainty? The brute confronting the master is asking a question about fact. Is the bird alive or dead? 
The Zen master was saying, the thing you wish me to see is certain is not. Now, if that's true, then the parable becomes a 2,000-year-old version of the quantum physics principle of Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's cat is a close cousin to the uncertainty principle. The question is posed by the physicist, there is a cat in the box. Is the cat alive or dead? In a quantum world, all events are possible. Before we open the box, the cat exists in what they call the superposition of being both alive and dead at the same time, just like our bird from the point of view of the Zen master. Could it be that the author of the Zen parable understood the universe the same way Einstein did? Then, like suitcases falling out of a hall closet, another meaning of the story tumbled onto my head. Quantum or not, the story was about relationships. The bird wasn't in danger just because the man caught him. The Zen master made the bully jealous. And regardless of the lofty ideals the Zen master may have had about life, his very existence is what put the bird in peril. The relationship created the danger. Relationships are the battleground where we fight for what version of ourselves we become. Honest or deceptive, independent or lazy, they reflect all of our potential and all of our weaknesses at the same time. Like Schrodinger's cat, our relationships are the rarefied superposition where we are all things at once. Once you fall in love, you are in the box and your story begins. You never know how you'll react to fortune or jealousy or children. You never know until you open up the box. When you start a relationship, you always have ideas of how the other person will broaden your horizon and lift you up. But truthfully, a relationship will always redefine itself around the level of its greatest weakness. The weaknesses Beth and I possess fell into the category of silence more than any outward disagreements. We almost never fought. We began by avoiding any conflict. In the end, we were avoiding anything true. The walls between us became a thousand miles high. The television talk show was wrapping up with its author. They showed a picture of the cover of his inspirational book. I'd like to say it was a picture of a bird flying free from a hand, but I wasn't paying attention. I went into performance gear. It was six o'clock. It was time to head to the theater. I was wondering if I would see Shy tonight in the theater parking lot. Shy was the street person we were trying to remake in the image of a modern sophisticate. He was also my personal experiment on the possibility of real change. I started thinking Russian thoughts, preparing for the three sisters. Maybe tonight they'd get to Moscow, but I doubted it. As I headed down the 101 freeway in the evening rush hour, I still had the vague dissatisfaction that I never learned... What happened to the bird? Not that I cared about a mythical bird. I was just curious as to what became of the mythical man after an unhappy meeting on the road. Theater is an interesting animal. It's always the same, 
and it's always different. This characteristic is emphasized if you happen to work on several plays in the same theater with basically the same cast and the same director as I did with Norwegian director Stein Vinga. You can walk into a rehearsal room on the first day with a new script in your hand, and you stop when you see the old tape on the floor marking out where the set of the previous show was. Your mind snaps back a year. You remember the day you had a breakthrough on a scene that had given you so much trouble? You remember cast members coming up to you, clearly moved, saying the scene was beautiful. Like remembering Maddie Lou Smith's smile, you have a moment when you feel assured and confident. Then you glance at the script in your hand. It's a different time. It's a different morning. You're working on a different play and playing a different part. The past is gone. I've learned from hard experience that past victories in theater mean nothing except in the bar after the show. Theater is one of the rarest forms of art. It vanishes. Movies and television exist forever. You can watch an episode of The Andy Griffith Show right now if you want. Beethoven's work is preserved as manuscript and now on CD and stereo at very high fidelity. Sculpture and painting and writing all outlive their creators. You can make a case that dance falls into the same category as theater, but I would argue that the stringent technique of, say, ballet makes the experience of a modern Swan Lake very much the same as one supervised by Tchaikovsky. Only theater, only a theater performance, is shaped new every night by the audience, by the mood of the actor, or by disaster. Unlike other art forms, theater is a shared creation. That's why when a play is good, people stand up and applaud at the curtain call. The production has actually taken the audience on a journey, and they're honoring the actors, the people who transported them for their safe return home. The actor heads home with nothing but maybe a story or two and gets ready to do the same thing the next day. Acting most imitates life, because it's the art of starting over again. We opened the Los Angeles Theater Center in 1985 with an odd but wonderful production of Chekhov's The Three Sisters. True to the nature of theater, the change I had in my pocket after the show was not monetary, but was memory. This was the show I worked with Anne for the first time as an actor. I worked with the great Norwegian director Stein Vinga for the first time. It was during this show... I felt the sensations of a new creative life. I was certainly feeling transformed from a person who was solely associated with acting in and directing Beth's plays to someone who could stand alone in their own efforts. It was during this time I met Shy, the charming street person who washed my car during the play. For a few weeks, he became a modern-day Pygmalion. But the transformation didn't stick, and he vanished into the night, proof of the sad fact that wishes and reality for the children of different parents. It was a time of terrible sadness for me and my relationship with Beth. We needed a miracle to save us. We didn't get one. Or if it came, it was so well disguised it just looked like an ordinary day. None of that ends up in the press clippings, but when I see the photos of that production, that's what I really see. Stein had returned to LATC a year later in 1986, to direct a play called Barabbas by Michel de Gelderode. 
We arrived that first morning as the stage manager was laying out new tape lines on the floor. Barabbas didn't have the poetry of the three sisters. It was a violent, depraved existential drama that took place at the height or depth of the Roman Empire, depending if you're a fan of gladiator movies. Stein cast many of the three sisters cast, along with some new faces. Bill Pullman played the leading role of Barabbas. Tony Geary played Judas. I played Pontius Pilate, and Anne played my wife, Mrs. Pilate. If plays are to be appreciated for their incomprehensibility, this play would have been right up there with Disney on ice. I know it wasn't written in English because it said it was translated into English on the title page. But even in English, I have never had lines like this in my life. Lines like, red, 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 I see red, all is red. Or, fear was rising like a dream like a dream of things forgotten, rising from the earth, the earth after a rain. The only way to deliver these lines properly is either if the actor or the audience is completely stoned. Stein was lucky because English was not his first language. However, he developed a method for dealing with obscure writing that's become a standard for modern drama. If you are working on something meaningless, make it unwatchable. That way the audience still won't like it, but at least it creates the illusion that they're missing the point. In de Gelderode's defense, I read that he never intended this play to be performed by people. He proudly stated he had written it for marionettes. In fact, he was one of the few playwrights that spent a lot of serious time writing for marionettes. Barabbas had a gigantic cast, making double and triple casting essential. For example... Anne played my wife in Act 1, and a baboon in Act 2. Yes, a baboon. I played Pontius Pilate in Act 1, and a man who wore pajamas in Act 2. Even if you understood the play in Act 1, you would be left in the dust when the same actor showed up in another scene wearing a monkey suit or pajamas. It was particularly difficult for American audiences because Stein cast his wife, Kari, as Jesus. Kari was a beautiful and certainly fearless actress, but our audiences had trouble dealing with the fact that Jesus was such a babe. The play had a complicated and dangerous set, with ladders rising high above the stage floor, trap doors falling to who knows where. It was a perfect setup for one of those elements that can shape a theater performance on any given night. Disaster. And we did not disappoint. Oh, we delivered new disasters almost nightly. I remember one in particular primarily because it involved me. In one of the early scenes of the play, Pontius Pilate has a nightmare. The way Stein staged it was I would sneak onto the stage in my white tuxedo in a blackout, lie on the floor. Stagehands would cover me with a military parachute. When the lights came up, I started squirming under the parachute, which scared the people on the front rows. I started the speech wriggling around. And I stood up and did most of the monologue walking around the stage with the parachute draped over me. Finally, at the end, I ripped the parachute off, the lights would change, and I would be greeted by King Herod, who tried to talk me into arresting Jesus. One night, we were performing for about 300 paying customers. The lights came up. I did my squirm under the parachute, drawing confused laughter from some of the theater patrons. Even though I still had no idea what I was saying, I felt like I had really captured the essence of Pontius Pilate having a real Alka-Seltzer tummy ache bad dream. 
I ripped the parachute off at the end of the speech and turned to meet King Herod, except he wasn't there. So I had to make a quick decision. I decided I could vamp for a little bit. Maybe Herod was running to the stage and would be here any second. One of the advantages of performing a speech that no one could understand was that no one would know if I was going to make something up. So I started a new speech in which I stared at the audience and said, Who are you? Am I really here? I just dreamt I was in a play and had a nightmare. But how could I know what is real and what is a dream? What if I'm dreaming now? What if I woke up and found myself on stage saying the same words I just dreamt I was saying? I have to admit, I thought the speech was going better than I expected. At worst, it just sounded like the lyrics to a moody blues song. But I lost my swagger when I started to notice furrowed eyebrows on the front row. I retraced my steps to the parachute, hoping to hide under it, but as I reached for it, a trap door opened and a stagehand pulled the parachute away. I paused for a moment and then decided to turn Barabbas into story theater. I walked back to the front of the stage and began to address the audience. I said, good evening. Welcome to Act One of Barabbas by Michelle de Gelderode. My name is Stephen Tobolowsky, and tonight I will be playing the role of Pontius Pilate. Let me explain what's supposed to happen now. Raise your hands if you know who King Herod was. A few members of the audience looked around to see if anyone else was going to raise their hands. Suddenly, a voice boomed out from the back of the theater. Stop, stop, stop. This is terrible. This is impossible. It was Stein. Stop this. We must stop. Stein started down the center aisle of the theater, and he called out to me. That was a nice speech. I yelled back to Stein. Thank you. It seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yes, of course. Stein nodded as he jumped onto the stage. To be honest, I think most of the audience was pretty sure the play was still going on. In fact, the scene with Stein walking down the center aisle of the theater, stopping the play, was finally something they could understand. Stein walked up to me and whispered, No sign of King Herod? I looked off stage. Not yet. Stein scratched his chin and said, So do the speech again. See if he comes. Stein went over to the trap door, knocked on it a couple times. It opened and he yelled down, We need the parachute. It flopped up on stage like the theater had a wet burp. Stein addressed the audience. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Barabbas. We're working out some technical difficulties, so we're rehearsing this bad dream again with this actor. Stein came up and whispered, Do something different. Anything. Otherwise... They may get bored. And don't talk about the dream within a dream. This play is long enough. Stein raised his eyebrows and jumped back into the audience. He yelled up to the control booth, Go back to the beginning of the nightmare. We did. I did the nightmare again in a completely different fashion. I ripped the parachute off. Still no actor. I yelled up to Stein, No, King Herod. One more time? Stein yelled back, Do you see him at all? I looked backstage. Looked off stage. Nothing. Stein yelled, Maybe one more time with the nightmare? The audience groaned. I yelled, Stein, if I did it again, it would become a recurring nightmare. The audience groaned more and started to shift uncomfortably in their seats. I started walking back to the parachute as a startled-looking King Herod ran onto the stage. The audience broke into applause. Stein called from the back of the theater, King Herod has arrived. The applause rose. Some actually started whistling in approval. Let's go on with the play. 
But first, do the nightmare one more time. Side note. When I finally did the scene with King Herod, I noticed he had a very special smell about him, a sort of pungent ganja pong coming from his beard. After the scene, I asked where he had been. He said he was sorry he was late, but he had found a great place under the stage to smoke grass. All I could say was, well, as long as you were doing something important. The real joke came about two weeks later. I got a call at home. A woman told me Mel Brooks wanted to speak with me. My heart stopped. I didn't even have time to pass out. I just said, uh, sure. Mel Brooks got on the line. He seemed full of good cheer. He said, Stephen, I saw you in a play the other night. Great stuff. I don't know if you heard from Bill Pullman, but he's starring in a new comedy I'm doing called Spaceballs. We have a little part, a one-day thing. It was going to be a cameo I was going to do with Frank Langell, but something came up and he's not going to do it. Pullman said to come see the show and see if you could do it. And I think you could. What do you think? It was one of those lucky times when shock seemed to look about the same as poise. And I said, uh, I'd love to, Mel. He said, great. Come on by the studio and let's work on this part together. We'll see what we come up with. I just stayed in my same state of catatonia. Yes, sir. Sounds fabulous. Mel was about to hang up and then he had an afterthought. And Stephen, what was that with the parachute? That was very strange, doing the whole speech under fabric. I said, well, Mel, our director comes from Norway. He's strange. Mel said, I understand. It's very cold over there. Anyway, see you over at the studio. I hung up. I couldn't believe this good fortune had come from that disaster. I could have saved myself a lot of misery in life if I had understood the lesson of Barabbas, that although catastrophe and blessings may appear to be unrelated— They may actually just be different cars on the same train. A year later, Stein returned to direct Tennessee Williams' masterpiece, The Glass Menagerie. The tape on the floor of the rehearsal room was changed once more. The past was gone. Or it should have been. But for me, it wasn't. My life had become a performance molded by disaster. I was caught. I couldn't let go of my relationship with Beth, even though it had let go of me long ago. I'd lost my direction. I was depressed. Everyone around me was concerned. Friends told me I wasn't the same person. That was bad. But what was worse? I realized they were right. I was desperate to find a break in the storm. A direction. Anything. I was looking for a sign. And I found one. One evening, I was invited to a party in Topanga Canyon. Now, Topanga is the magic kingdom where it's still the 1960s every day. A place where people believed in causes. Watching sunsets was a respected occupation. And the tambourine was considered a musical instrument. Dee Dee and Bruce were the wonderful hosts as usual. I brought the pooch as my date. We sat outside. It was a beautiful evening. The sun was just setting and I was sipping a bit of homemade margarita out of a plastic cup. That's when Stein arrived. Bruce and Dee Dee wanted to show him what a real California country party was like. Stein sat down at the table with us. He said his hellos, and then he laughed as he pointed out that the pooch was slurping up my drink. Side note. Ever since the day Beth and I found the pooch, she seemed to have a taste for margaritas on the rocks with salt. Now, first we thought it was cute, then troublesome. Over time, I'm embarrassed to say... 
I turned a blind eye to her drinking, figuring she was just a unique dog that managed to avoid the Grim Reaper and probably needed to blow off some steam. At any rate, I was driving. What difference did it make? Dee Dee, who was the human manifestation of the hippie goddess of concern, was not amused. Stephen, she said, don't let the pooch drink too much tonight. It's pretty obvious that the dog already has some serious mental deficiencies, and there's no telling if she'd turn out to be a mean drunk. I tried to explain that the pooch was probably just liking the salt in the margarita. Dee Dee wasn't buying it. She looked at the bedraggled gray mass of fur in my lap. Pooch looked up at Dee Dee and groaned, fearing that this was a possible intervention. Dee Dee turned her gaze to me and said, Tobo, self-deception doesn't look good on you. From what I've seen, this dog is an alcoholic. You're just enabling her. Bruce added, Tobo, face it, man. You're codependent. I nodded and assured him I would cut the pooch off early tonight. Stein leaned over to me and said, You know, I'm planning on doing a movie in Norway of Pierre Ghent. Have you heard of this story? I said, Sure. The Hall of the Mountain King. Right, Edvard Grieg? It's a famous legend. Uh, Pierre Ghent was a wanderer. He roamed around for a long time, right? Yes, said Stein. Very long time. I'm going to shoot it in Norway over the next two years. It'll be a very big project. I think there's a good part in it for you. The part of a mountain troll. We'll shoot your scenes in the high peaks. Very beautiful. Maybe you could come out to Norway and stay with me for a while. I'll show you the mountain. Joe interrupted the conversation. Tobo, I think the pooch just drank my beer. I turned to Joe and said, That's impossible. The pooch is sitting in my lap. Joe said, Yeah? Well, then why is my beer half gone, and why does she have foam all over her maw? I said, her what? Joe said, her maw, her chops, whatever you call the lower half of her face. Look at her. I looked down, and indeed the pooch had either suddenly contracted rabies or had what appeared to be the foam of a Sam Adams pale lager on her whiskers. I quietly but firmly questioned her. Pooch? Pooch got very defensive, looked around, and refused to make eye contact with me. I said, Joe, I'm sorry. I'll get you another beer. I think when she drinks a margarita, she gets kind of thirsty from the salt and just needs a beer back, you know, just to kind of cleanse the palate. Joe just stared at me. I'm sorry, Joe. What was it, a Sam Adams? Joe looked at me with mild irritation. Yes, or a Dos Equis. Just bring me the bottle. I headed for the kitchen, but my brain was churning. Sometimes you hear something crazy, and you know it's crazy, and you smile, and you say, sounds great knowing you'll never do it. But then sometimes you hear something crazy and you know it's crazy and it resonates with the crazy in you and then you know you have to do it. The next week, I bought a ticket to go to Norway and I thought back to my Zen story. Maybe the bird was in my hands after all. Maybe. Load the car and ride the note Grab your bag and grab your coat Tell the ones that need to know We are headed north One foot in, one foot back But it don't pay to live like that 
So I cut the ties and I jump the tracks For never to return Oh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, take me That was The Zen Story, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, why don't you tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? I think one great thing to look at is the new story I wrote for Kindle Single. It's an original story for Kindle, so it'll never appear as a Tobolowsky file. It's called Cautionary Tales. And to read that, you would just go to stephentobolowsky.com. And that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T is in Tom, O-B is in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And you'll be able to get to Cautionary Tales. All right, and uh, you can find every episode of The Tobolowsky Files at tobolowskyfiles.com. The Tobolowsky Files is written and performed by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, produced and edited by me, David Chen, with special thanks to Jeff Hansen from KUOW 94.9 in Seattle for his help in getting the show on the air, as well as a special thanks to our interns, Brandon and Andrew, for making this show possible. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. We'll see you guys later. Adios. I'll see you in the morning time Oh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, take me in Are you in the shape I'm in? My hands, they shake, my head, it spins Oh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, take me in Came hard to say